So I said last week that Herb was supposed to speak this week. My OCD. But Herb's still a little under the weather. I, I got a text from him this morning saying that he was feeling a lot better. Um, but you're still stuck with me for the next couple weeks. Uh, can I give you a peek behind the curtain? Uh, maybe break the fourth wall this morning? When I, when, we, when I do this whole speaking thing, there are, there are a few different types of message that I could present, that I could preach. And a couple weeks, or a couple months ago, I did a message on idolatry. Uh, last week, the title of the message was a question, am I a disciple? About a month ago, I did a, a three-week series on faithfulness, God's faithfulness. Those were all, with the exception of the last week of Faithful Then, Faithful Now, those were all topical messages. So as I'm, when they say, hey, Hunter, do you want to preach? Usually my immediate answer is yes, because I love it. Um, but then I spend some time praying. God, what do you want me to say? What, what do you want communicated? Because this is not about me at all. So, there's a topical message, God gives me a topic, and then from that I dive into the scriptures and history and blah, 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 ipso facto message. Now, the, my final message of Faithful Then Faithful Now was a testimonial message where I shared what my life was like, a season of my life and God's faithfulness through that season. So not quite topical, but testimonial. And then another type of teaching is what we call expositional teaching, and that's a verse-by-verse -verse breakdown, a message that is breaking down Scripture verse-by-verse. -verse. That is Pastor Jeremiah's preferred method of teaching, um, and he is very good at it. One of the difficulties of teaching expositionally is you can't skip verses. You don't get the, the you don't get to miss out on the tough stuff. You don't get to skirt by the confusing verses. You got to do it all. Now, that's, in my personal opinion, that is what our primary method of teaching in this worship service, in this context, should be. Now, not to say that we have to exclusively teach expositionally. I mean, I just admitted that four out of my five messages were topical. But this is one of the reasons why, like I said, I love Pastor Jeremiah's teaching because he doesn't try to skirt around the tough verses. He doesn't skip the confusing ones. He plows through it. Because he is faithful to teach the Word of God. And that's our calling, is to be faithful to teach the Word of God. I say that to say, over the next couple weeks, we're going to be taking a look at the book of Titus. It's going to be a little different style of teaching than you've gotten out of me the last few months. But nonetheless, I am excited to see what God does through the teaching of his Word. But before we dive in, let me pray one more time. God, you are faithful. You are faithful when our eyes are on you, and you're faithful when our eyes are elsewhere. Um, God, we, we have a lot of sickness going around, so I just want to lift up those in our church who are, whether it be physically sick, there's some spiritual sickness, God, and I pray that you work on that too. You are the God of the universe, and you desire a personal relationship with us. You desire that we continually grow in our relationship with you. So God, as, as we dive into this difficult text, 
It's sometimes hard to hear text. That you humble our hearts, open our minds, because God, some of this is going to be hard to hear. And I pray that we receive it in humility. God, if we need to be convicted, bring conviction. If we need your grace and mercy, just wrap, up, wrap us up in your arms and comfort us. But give us what we need so that we can grow closer to you. Not what we want, but what we need. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So last week, we, the sermon title was, Am I a Disciple? We looked at the Great Commission. Uh, Jesus' final command to his disciples, go and make disciples of all nations, teaching them to obey me, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. We said that if we claim to be a Christian, we are a disciple. And that's a scary word. And there's a few reasons for that. Talked about it last week. But if we are a Christian, we are a disciple, which means that command, go and make disciples, applies to each and every one of us. We call this effort to make disciples, discipleship. And if you're wondering what that looks like, I, I just so happen to be teaching a class on practical discipleship. Shameless plug, back in the root wing at 10 a.m. Uh, but one of the things we talked about last week in that class was that Jesus was calling people to himself. He was teaching people to follow him. Our discipleship will look a little different than his. Our disciple will... Our discipleship will mirror that of Paul's, who in 1 Corinthians wrote, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Or some uh, translations say, follow me as I follow Christ. So our job is to imitate Christ and have people imitate us, and then they will in turn be following Christ, imitating Christ. Now, see, Paul had a pretty good handle on discipleship. We see various relationships as he's writing to churches and individuals in the New Testament that he understood what it looked like to make disciples. Now in the class, we're talking about how discipleship isn't something that can just happen naturally. It's not something that happens organically. Discipleship is an intentional, relational effort. You can't just fall into a discipleship relationship. You have to intentionally decide, intentionally discuss. See, last week we said a disciple has three characteristics. We said there's a disciple is somebody who's following Christ, who is being changed by Christ, and who is committed to the mission of Christ. So therefore, discipleship is helping somebody do those things, talking with somebody about following Christ, being changed by Christ, being committed to the mission of Christ. Not just willy-nilly as, as things come up, but intentionally, same person, same conversations, growing and walking toward Christ. So, like I, I don't think we, can, we have the capacity to disciple more than a couple people at a time. Jesus had 12, and then he had his three. I don't think we, as average Joes, have the, or average Janes, have the capacity to disciple more than a couple people. There have been times where we've had 150 students involved in our youth ministry, and I do not <laughs> have the capacity to engage in this level of discipleship, which is why Jesus doesn't say, all right, the pastors are going to make disciples, and y'all just get to participate. No, 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 no. If you are a Christian, you are a disciple, and your command, your charge, your task is to make disciples. Want to know how to do that? Come to my class. But Paul had a pretty good handle 
on discipleship. He lived out his faith. He taught. He spoke. He mostly wrote. We see a lot of his letters to groups of people. He shared his faith both through the way he lived, but also through discussing and sharing how Christ had changed him. Tonight at youth group, we're going to talk about Paul's conversion. And it's an incredible story. If you haven't looked at it or it's been a minute, go to Acts 8 tonight and just, or 9, 9, and it'll just blow your mind. But he also had these intentional discipleship relationships that we are talking about. Paul was a disciple maker. He had a few guys in the New Testament that he had a deeper intentional discipleship type relationship with. First to come to mind with me is Timothy, right? Then the next one that comes to mind is Titus. And that's who we're looking at over the next couple weeks. See, Paul, he would, he would do ministry with these guys. He would teach them. He would travel with them. He would serve with them. And at one point or another, he would send them out to serve separately. That's the goal of discipleship. Make a disciple, send a disciple. Reach, build, send. The sending out is huge. It's a big part of that. Often, while they were serving apart from one another and Paul was in prison or Paul was in prison, he would write them, giving them guidance and direction, as well as giving their churches guidance and direction. So we have letters like First and Second Timothy. And then we have Titus, which we're going to dive into right now. Nope, that's Zechariah. Titus. Chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. In the hope of eternal life that God, who cannot lie, promised before time began. In his own time he has revealed his word in the preaching with which I was entrusted by the command of God our Savior. To Titus, my true son in our common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. See, Paul was a man who understand that God had saved him for a purpose, and that purpose was to serve. See, Paul knew who he was in Christ. He knew that his identity was not in what he did, his gifts, skills, talents, abilities that we talked about last week, but his identity was in the God who gave him those gifts, talents, skills, and abilities. So Paul knew who he was in Christ, and he knew that that meant that he had to serve Christ and live differently. And he wrote this letter to Titus, who was mentioned, by the way, fun fact, 13 times in the New Testament. Titus was a Greek non-Jewish convert that Paul had sent to work with both the Corinthian church and the church in Crete. Now, these two churches... And these communities were incredibly difficult to work with. And, and we see that through some of the issues that Titus deals with. Um, but this also gives us an indication about how much Paul trusted Titus. One writer referred to Titus as Paul's spiritual Navy SEAL because he would go into the hard places, fix things, and make things right. Um, but much like Timothy, Paul was a spiritual, sorry, Titus was a spiritual son to Paul, discipleship relationship, intentional discipleship relationship. 
So Paul sent Titus to preach the same message that he had been preaching. Author, pastor, and commentator David Platt says, A person captured by the love of Jesus will love him in return, not because he has to, but because he wants to. He saved you that you might serve him. He saved you that you might enjoy him. And that was the mission of Paul, Timothy, and Titus. They understood that Christ saved them to serve and enjoy Christ. And they did just that. However, they, they were not ones to shy away from a harsh truth. If they were preachers today, I would imagine that they were, would be expositional preachers. See, there's a reason that the gospel is offensive. There's a reason that Jesus says, the world is going to hate you because you love me. Why? Because the truth that we stand on is countercultural. And as we'll find out over these next couple weeks, Titus had some tough things that he had to say to his church. But they were very important if they were to gain the same understanding that he and Paul had. Saved by Christ to serve and enjoy Christ. In order for them to get the point of serving and enjoying Christ, in order for them to get it and get there, they needed some truth. We continue with verse 5. This is not a Bible that stays open when you open it up. I need a new one. The reason I left you in Crete was to set right what was left undone. And as I directed you to appoint elders in every town, an elder must be blameless, the husband of one wife with faithful children who are not accused of wildness or rebellion. As an overseer of God's household, he must be blameless, not arrogant, not hot-tempered, not an excessive drinker, not a bully, not greedy for money, but hospitable, loving what is good, sensible, righteous, holy, self-controlled, holding to the faithful message that was faithful message as taught so that he will be able both to encourage with sound teaching and to refute those who contradict it. So Platt, back to the author guy, author pastor guy. He said in regard to this section of scripture, qualified leaders of the church must be men who exemplify godliness in every area of their life. Their commitments, their conduct, their character, and their convictions. One of Titus's tasks as their pastor was to appoint biblically qualified elders. So side note, throughout the New Testament, we see words like elder, overseer, and pastor. Now those words are interchangeable. But an elder must be blameless, which is sort of like the umbrella that all those other qualifications fall under. See, if you're blameless... You cannot be accused of anything. You're living rightly, and therefore, all of those other characteristics will apply to you as well. So the husband of one wife with faithful children. An elder must be faithful to their family. Not that they can't be single or be a widower, but they must be faithful. Not arrogant, hot-tempered, not an excessive drinker, a bully, or greedy. You can't be an elder if you're an irresponsible jerk. Makes sense. They must be hospitable, loving what is good, sensible, righteous, holy, self-controlled, holding to the faithful message as taught, and able to encourage with sound teaching and refute those 
who contradict it. This is one of the biblical passages that we get for our church leadership model at Brown Corners Church. Much like Titus, Paul, Timothy, and the rest of the early church leaders, we appoint elders based on this biblical model of, elder, of church leadership and eldership. And then our elders raise up more elders, more biblically qualified elders. We don't have too much time, because you guys know how much I talk, uh, to dive into our elder process here at Brown Corners Church. But a couple years ago, maybe you remember, maybe you don't, but Pastor Jeremiah spent an entire summer going through First Timothy and biblical eldership. And then after that series, he had a meeting where he provided a document that laid it all out. Biblical uh, precedents, changes, blah, blah, blah. That document's on our website. You can find it by hovering over the About Us tab, going down to the what we, what we Believe page, and then scrolling all the way down past the denominational beliefs. But maybe read those, too. That's important. And then clicking the Elder link. But the document breaks down, like I said, they're elder, overseer, pastor, they're interchangeable. It breaks down those words. It looks at how many elders a church should have, the roles and the tasks of an elder, as well as the qualifications and lifestyle of an elder. See, we changed church leadership systems. And, and this is still a relatively new system here at Brown Corners Church, but it's an incredibly biblical system. So ideally, the way that it works is the current elders will be identifying or identify, we do this, future, uh, potential future elders. And then we work with those individually, those individuals, through a book on eldership. Uh, and then as new elders are needed, we have this list of potential elders that understand the role and all that, blah, 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 blah. And we pray, and we pray, and we pray, and we ask God for wisdom and direction on, God, who do you want to be an elder at Brown Corners Church? Once we've identified who that person or those persons are, coming up here pretty quick, we'll have a couple of them. We bring them up here to you guys, and we say, we believe God is guiding us and has this person to be an elder, uh, so we want you to be praying for them, praying for us. And if you have any reason that they should not be an elder, contact an elder and let us know. Not, not like, yep, uh, while we're here, let's just tell this guy did this back in, no, 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 to a different elder separately, not in front of everybody. That's awkward. But we want to make sure that they're biblically qualified. You guys are a part of that process through prayer, through if you got issues, if you got a reason that someone should not be an elder at Brown Corners Church, bring those up. But again, we don't have time to dive too much deeper into that. That document on the website lays out all the biblical precedent and again, more specifics and into biblical eldership and here at Brown Corners Church. If you ever have any questions, I want to say this as well. Any questions about anything? Well, when an event is coming up or something as big and deep as biblical eldership, you can contact the office or one of our elders and we'll get you answers. We've, they might not know the answer right then, but we'll get it to you eventually. Um, a list of current elders and staff is on the website under the About Us staff or About Us page, Who We Are page. Continuing in Titus, verse 10. For there are many rebellious people, full of empty talk and deception, especially those from the circumcision party. It is necessary to silence them. They are ruining entire households by teaching what they shouldn't in order to get money dishonestly. 
One of their very own prophets said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. For this reason, rebuke them sharply so that they may be sound in the faith and may not pay attention to Jewish myths and the commands of people who reject the truth. To the pure, everything is pure. But to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. In fact, both their mind and conscience are defiled. They claim to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, and unfit for any work. Four. For they are rebellious, deceptive people, and it is necessary to silence them. Paul tells Titus, go and appoint elders with these qualifications. For there are. Appoint these elders because there are rebellious people spewing all kinds of deception and false teaching. And those elders need to be able to confront them. So one of the roles of an elder is to squash false teaching, deception, and improper, improper motives within the church. They were speaking and teaching in order to get money. Improper motives. One of the difficulties of false teaching is that those spewing that nonsense are usually personable. Their message is attractive and persuasive. And it, and it contains just enough truth to deceive. When Paul writes that these people are rebellious and full of empty talk, rebellious speaks to their attitude and empty talk speaks to their motives. They have an issue with authority. They're rebelling against authority and their empty talk. They refuse accountability. They won't be held accountable. They wouldn't take the words of leadership to heart they would ignore them and disregard them completely. I love this. One commentator referred to them as cotton candy preachers. A lot of show, but no substance. Church, we have cotton candy preachers in our world today. And we have people who are eating it up. But the problem with eating the teaching of a cotton candy preacher is that you don't end up full. You end up with an empty stomach and a lot of cavities. We live in a post-truth society, which means according to the world, there's no such thing as truth. There are no, there's no absolute truth. Your truth is true for you, but it's not true for me. That's a lie. That is false teaching. That's deceptive. There is absolute truth. But the problem with being in this post-truth culture is that we no longer handle within the church confrontation biblically. We don't confront people that need to be confronted, and we don't handle being confronted the way we should. So, again, we don't have time to go into this, but the biblical way to handle confrontation, you can find it laid out in Matthew 18, 15 through 20. Uh, but we must be able to confront false teachers and those deceived by false teaching, but we must handle it biblically with love and grace. And we must be able to handle being confronted about our beliefs. 
It's important to be in the Word, first and foremost, seeking to better understand the Word and knowing what you believe because we need to be able to defend our beliefs. If I'm up here on stage saying something, I have to be able to have somebody come up and be like, Hunter, that was wrong. And lay out in Scripture where if we disagree, if it's even an issue that's big enough to scuffle about, probably won't come to throw in hands because I'm pretty weak sauce. But we need to be able to discuss what we believe, why we believe it, and handle those confrontations in a biblical manner. We need to understand how Scripture works, how Scripture backs up our beliefs, and where our beliefs are found in Scripture. See, one of the most common forms of teaching, of false teaching, in our world today is what's referred to as prosperity theology. And it takes many forms, but there are a lot of different ways to teach prosperity theology. It's the theological perspective that says if we have enough faith, if I pray enough, if I pay enough, then God will give me what I want. If I have enough faith, I won't be sick anymore. If I give the church enough money, God's going to answer my prayer. If we do blank... God will make us wealthy and keep us healthy. Church, the idea that God will heal us or give us what we want simply because, we, because of what we provide, that, that we have enough faith, that idea is malarkey. I had to go to a really old dictionary to find the word malarkey. It's false teaching. It's preaching a false gospel that says you can earn God's favor by doing something. Church, the gospel of Christ is this. We are sinful and cannot be in the presence of God because he is perfect and cannot be in the presence of sin. But God, being rich in mercy and grace, he saw fit to save us. He wanted a relationship with every single one of us. So he sent Christ, who is God, to take the punishment for our sin, to bridge an unbridgeable gap between us and God so that we can have a relationship with him, so that we can spend eternity with him, so that we can serve him and enjoy him. Nothing you do, no amount of service, no amount of money, no amount of anything can earn your salvation. It's only in submission through faith and the grace of God, that we receive this free gift of salvation. We need to understand that true gospel so that we can, false, or we can spot a false gospel when it's presented to us. How do we do that? We need to be in the word. We need to be taking in sound teaching. We need to have accountability in our lives so that when we encounter false teaching or we're deceived by false teaching... Someone can say, run. Platt says, false teaching will inevitably lead to false living. And if you're believing false teaching, you will eventually begin to live falsely as well. We must remain pure. The context here is in our teaching and theology. How do we remain pure? Hang on, I need water. I'm starting to, my voice is starting to crack. (laughs) 
That's all right. This is my last one for the day, right? <laughs> we can start by evaluating the teaching that we are taking in. The pastors we listen to, the podcasts we listen to, the books we read. Like I said last week, what goes in will eventually come out. What teaching are you taking in? Paul gives us a little bit more insight into what it might look like to remain pure, starting in chapter 2, verse 1. But you are to proclaim things consistent with sound teaching. Older men are to be self-controlled, worthy of respect, sensible, and sound in faith, love, and endurance. In the same way, older women are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers, not slaves to excessive drinking. They are to teach what is good so that they may encourage the young women to love their husbands and to love their children. To be self-controlled, pure workers at home, kind and in submission to their husbands so that God's word will not be slandered. In the same way, encourage young men to be self-controlled in everything. Make yourself an example of good works with integrity and dignity in your teaching. Your message is to be sound beyond reproach so that any opponent will be ashamed because he doesn't have anything bad to say about us. Slaves are to submit to their masters in everything and to be well-pleasing, not talking back or stealing, but demonstrating other, utter faithfulness so that they may adorn the teaching of God our Savior in everything. We must proclaim things consistent with sound teaching. Are you proclaiming sound things? What are you proclaiming with your life, both in word and in deed? Do your beliefs proclaim sound teaching? How do you know? Is it because some young punk who called himself a pastor was on stage one Sunday and said some stuff? Or is it because you actually dove into the word of God and can back up your beliefs with scripture? Do your words proclaim sound teaching? We talked about this last week too. Do you honor God with your words? Are you sharing biblically sound concepts, ideas, and teaching? And then do your actions proclaim sound teaching? Are you living blamelessly? Can somebody charge you with an accusation of sin? See, we all communicate a message with our lives. And I want to ask, is that message the gospel of Christ? Paul then goes on to list some character stuff for various groups of people. Self-controlled, worthy of respect, sensible, sound in faith and endurance, reverent in behavior, not a slanderer or an excessive drinker, teaching what is good. Be an example of a good worker with integrity and dignity. Submissive, well-pleasing, not talking back, no stealing, and demonstrating faithfulness to adorn God in everything. Be blameless. Paul writes that the older generation must teach the younger generation. If you consider yourself older, whether that's 18 or 80, do you have someone younger that you're helping to live as a pure believer? I'm not saying you have to call Steve or myself and start helping with the kids or the youth, but each one of us should be mentoring someone younger. Whether that's a kid, a student, a young married couple, a young single adult, everyone needs the wisdom, direction, and discipleship of someone older. And really quick, I want to touch on the slave stuff. When you read the word slave in Scripture, more often than not, not always, but more often than not, 
it's not like the slaves that were freed from the Emancipation Proclamation. It's generally, but again, not always, somebody working up a debt, paying a penalty for a crime, things like that. But with those particular characteristics, if you'll allow me a little bit of leeway with creativity, apply those characteristics to your work ethic. Apply them to the manner in which you treat and respond to authority in your life. Submission. Be well-pleasing, not talking back. No stealing. Demonstrate faithfulness so that they may adorn the teaching of God in everything. Is that how you treat your authority figures? Continuing on, verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, instructing us to deny godlessness and worldly lusts, and to live in a sensible, righteous, and godly way in the present age, while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. He gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to cleanse for himself a people for his own possession, eager to do good works. Proclaim these things, encourage and rebuke with all authority, let no one disregard you. The gospel of Jesus Christ demands that we deny godlessness and worldly lusts and live in a sensible, righteous, and godly way in the present age. Does that describe you? Does that describe your understanding and living out of the gospel? We just talked about this. Christ came down, gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness, all godlessness, the lusts of the world, and to cleanse for himself a people for his possession, eager to do good works. Are you eager to do good works for Jesus? Or are you eager to do whatever you want to do, whatever makes your life happy, healthy, comfortable, And then Paul ends the chapter by saying, Titus, proclaim these things. Encourage and rebuke with all authority and let no one disregard you. Church, if an elder of the church confronted you for your lusts and lawlessness or for being deceived by false teaching, would you disregard him? Or would you in humility reflect and respond according to the scriptures? I mean, the the Sunday school answer is obviously I would submit to the authority. But would you? This gospel, this salvation is for all people. In his letter to the Philippian church, Paul encourages them as believers and recipients of this salvation for all people through Christ. He says, adopt the attitude of Christ. And today I'm encouraging you to do the same. Philippians 2, 5 through 11 reads, Adopt the same attitude as that of Christ, who, existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God something to be exploited. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. And when he had come as a man, he humbled himself 
by being obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above all names, or every name, depending on your translation, so that the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The gospel of Jesus Christ is this, that Christ did not see equality with God as something to be exploited. Although Jesus is God, he didn't use his power for personal gain. Although he could have, he did not, invo- he did not avoid the pain and suffering required to take our place, die for our sin, and reconcile us to our creator. This king became a servant so that everyone, yep, Everyone may become a member of this royal family. This king turned servant wanted so much to expand the borders of his kingdom that he humbled himself. He was obedient to the point of death. Even the most shameful death, death on a cross. By dying a shameful death, he identified himself with a shameful people creating the opportunity for all who call on his name to enter into the kingdom of God. And for this, this king turned servant was returned to his throne where he sits at the right hand of God. This king has the name above all names. This is a name that will cause every knee to bow and every tongue to confess that Jesus is Lord. Do you believe that this morning? Does your life reflect that belief? See, we aren't saved by our actions. We can't earn, pray, or pay our way into heaven. We aren't saved by what we do. But our fruit will be the evidence of our faith. We will prove that we've been saved by the way we honor Christ through our everyday actions. This letter to Titus is an incredibly written letter, and it's uniquely organized. We must raise up biblically qualified elders to stop false teaching and to lead God's people to make disciples and live the life that Christ has called us to live. Church, if you're here this morning, individuals, if you're here, families, if you're here this morning, it's for a reason. It's not an accident. God doesn't make mistakes. If you woke up, it means he's not done with you. And if you're hearing this message, this gospel, and you've never accepted this free gift of salvation, that is for all people. If you've never entered into this relationship with Jesus, after the service, I encourage you to come up. There's going to be people up here to pray with you, to help you start that relationship. Maybe you're struggling with something. Life's hitting you from all sides and you need somebody to pray with. Come to the front. Maybe you've fallen into the trap of complacency and you've just been going through the motions and you need to hit the reset button. Come forward. Maybe you've fallen into the trap of believing a false gospel. You believe that you can show up to church enough, that you can give the church enough money, that you can support enough missionaries or, or 
serve enough or pray enough. Maybe you've believed a false gospel and you need somebody to pray with. Come up front. And if you just want to pray, come up front. This is something I always say. We always say, don't leave this place the same way you walked in. We should always leave with a stronger desire to seek God's face. And church, if God is stirring in your heart to come forward and pray, don't walk out without coming up front first. Let's pray. God, you are our creator. Not just some distant, far-off puppet master, but you're a personal creator. You've created us for a purpose, to serve you, to enjoy you, and to bring other people into this kingdom. God, if there's anyone in here who doesn't understand that, who doesn't have that relationship with you, I pray that they come forward so that can change, so that they can enter into a relationship with the God that created them, with the God that loves them, and the God that wants God, if we're, we're struggling, we're complacent, we're believing false God, whatever it is, God, I just pray that you do the work in our hearts because it's nothing we can do. It's nothing we can change. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for his sacrifice that allowed, that bridged the unbridgeable gap so that we could even talk to you. We're thankful for that this morning. As we leave, God, don't let us leave the same way we walked in. We love you, and we just want to serve you with everything we have, every fiber of our being. And if that's not our heart's desire, God, change our hearts. We ask all these things in Jesus' name.